Yes, indeedy. Welcome to the Upful Life Podcast, and I'm your host, B. Getz. And this is episode number two. We want to thank everybody that tuned in to episode one with Michelangelo Caruba from Turquoise and my man, J.A., Very appreciative of the response that I've received in the week or so since the first episode was released. Very humbled and grateful for all the listeners and the messages and texts and emails and DMs and such, uh, empowering and encouraging me on this endeavor. Also appreciate uh, the constructive criticism and the advice that I've received from people both in the industry and listeners alike, and rest assured that I will take that to heart, and hopefully can find a nice balance between what everybody would like to get out of this podcast and what I would like to put into it. It seems like we're on a lot of common ground to start. So again, thank you for listening and for chiming in. I also want to take a moment to thank some folks that have been instrumental in not only getting this podcast off the ground, but more just getting my career to where it is today. Hopefully soon enough we'll have some official sponsors here on the Up for Life podcast. But for now we're just going to throw some thank yous out to the good folks at Swanee Halloween. An amazing festival that takes place in Live Oak, Florida at the Majestic Spirit of Swanee Music Park. October 25 to 28 and features a myriad of incredible bands and DJs, artists, workshops and such. I've been several years going and uh, this year's lineup is nothing short of dynamite. Headlined by the mighty Jamiroquai along with Odessa, Janelle Monet, Lettuce is returning for the fourth consecutive year, Sound Tribe Sector 9, Wolfpack making their hula debut, Troy Boy, The Mighty Dave Tipper, The Revivalists, Mavis Staples, Bishop Briggs, Medeski Martin and Wood. I mean, the list goes on. So thank you to Swanee Halloween for your uh, unconditional and unwavering support of Up For Life and uh, Silver Rapper and Purple Hat Productions. The folks behind Swanee Halloween, um, really honor and privilege to work with you guys. So wanted to start off the pod with a thank you to Hula and of course to Live For Live Music. Uh, Live For Live Music is the primary home of most of my Uh, music journalism, and I've been very fortunate that they've chosen to uh, allow me the autonomy to write as I uh, enjoy and see fit and pursue stories that are near and dear to my heart. 
and they're always uh, on top of what's going down in the streets and bringing it to the people. So big thanks to Live for Live Music. Moving on to this episode. Uh, Not long ago, I took a trip back to the East Coast, as this podcast and my life is based in the Bay Area, but I'm from the Philadelphia area, uh, South Jersey to be exact, and I traveled back to Philadelphia proper to visit my mom, who lives in Center City, do the Rosh Hashanah thing with her, uh, go see Jamiroquai at Forest Hill Stadium in Queens, and of course, the Eagles game at the link where we uh, revealed our championship banner and started the new season as world champions for the very first time. I want to time out and say large up and huge, huge thanks to my man Curveball. That's right, my longtime homeboy Curveball, Joe D., um, the hometown homie who made sure that my partner Alicia and I uh, got into that historic football game against the Falcons, which we won. So thanks, Joe D. Um, The reason I bring this up on the pod is that's why I was in Philly, and I did find the time to do two interviews, one of which with today's guest, Chris Perella, Philadelphia Music's Fengali. Now, a little bit of context here before we get to the interview. Uh, Chris is the uh, head honcho at the Ardmore Music Hall, which is a uh, lightning hot club uh, for the jam and jazz funk and uh, post Grateful Dead scene, as well as hip hop and and some other contemporary music genres. Um, Chris was also the uh, manager at a club called the Blockley, a legendary spot that I had the privilege of working for him at uh, for a couple years. Um, around 2012 and most of 2013, I had moved home from Florida near Hula um, to Philadelphia to uh, help my mom care for my uh, ailing father, who would eventually pass away in uh, early 2015. So in 2012 and 2013, uh, I was living in Center City, moved back in with my folks uh, for the first time in many, many years. And it was a kind of a dark time in my life for any number of reasons, but the most of which was I was watching my father's uh, you know, deterioration up close and personal. And to his credit, uh, Chris didn't know this, but he did know that I'd come back to town and he was familiar with my name through my work at Jambase. And a fellow named Jake, who also worked at Jambase and was dialed at the Blockley, uh, suggested that uh, I head on over there and see uh, if I could be of service to this club. And uh, you know, as we talk about in the podcast, you know, Chris and I hit it off. And to his credit, Chris was able to see past some of uh, the dark cloud that was around me at the time and uh, really empowered me to take some positive steps in my career and, and diversify my portfolio, if you will, as I got much more into the marketing side uh, of, you know, the music business from a club perspective. Anyway, uh, that is the basis for our relationship. And even though the Blockley uh, unfortunately closed uh, rather unceremoniously, um, 
Chris has moved on to great success, not only with his club of four-plus years, the Ardmore Music Hall, but he is also the manager of the Everyone Orchestra, or one of the co-manager, I should say, and has his hand in a lot of things. I'm not going to spoil it now. just wanted to give you guys the 411 on what's to come. At the conclusion of my interview with Chris... We're going to do the first ever Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, which is going to be something uh, I'd like to implement on a regular basis here at Up Full Life. Uh, sort of an opportunity to just uh, give some spotlight to uh, dope jam or song or passage of music each and every week or each and every episode, I should say, that we put out the Up Full Life podcast. Some will be well-known artists and others not so much, more obscure maybe. Um, And that's cool because we want to uh, give the appropriate shine and spotlight to cats that are out there doing it and doing it well. And I'd like an opportunity to just reciprocate uh, the privilege and uh, good fortune that I've had um, in the work that I do and the many, many artists out there that have Uh, opened themselves up to me or brought me into their artistic bosom or uh, befriended me or worked with me in any number of capacities. And um, for that reason, I'd like to do the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. So that'll be at the end of the interview. And there you have the introduction for Episode 2 of the Up Full Life podcast. Big thanks to all who are tuning in. Coming up next is Philadelphia Music's Fengali, Chris Perella of the Ardmore Music Hall. Welcome to the powwow with B. Getz. We're here in Philadelphia, and I'm sitting with uh, Chris Perella from the Ardmore Music Hall, just outside of Philadelphia. What would you say your title is at uh, Ardmore Music Hall? Uh, my signature is managing partner and talent buyer, so I guess that's as close as I can get, but I'm wearing a lot of hats. Right on, right on. And uh, Chris here is a major mover and shaker in the Philadelphia music scene for the better part of a decade now, Um, and I was lucky enough to work for Chris uh, about five years ago at a club called the Blockley in uh, Center City area, Philadelphia, sort of University City, Center City area, and uh, he's got a lot of history with this guy, so uh, let's talk a little bit about Ardmore, because that's what's on the tip of everybody's tongue. Um, How many years have you guys been there? Uh, well, first of all, thanks. It's good to be with you. <laughs> yeah, um, likewise. We are celebrating the venue's fifth anniversary this month, but it's a bit misleading because my partner and I took over a year after the club had been converted to Ardmore Music Hall. So we've been there four years as of next month, um, but five years for the venue. Right on, right on. And you guys book, uh, you know, kind of a, a specialized talent leaning towards the jam and funk community, but 
Um, what would you say uh, is the main sort of scene that the Ardmore Music Hall caters to? Yeah, I think the ethos kind of comes back to the festival world at large. So I think a lot of people sort of off the top of their head will call us the jam band haven. But it's really an extension of the dead, which is more, you know, a lot in uh, the dead and the band and Dylan and things that are more in the roots and Americana vein. Um, and then a lot of New Orleans influence and Cajun and, um, you know, funk and soul and uh, some reggae. And so it's definitely well beyond jam bands, but I think the most common thread is up-tempo, um, you know, feel-good, conscious, um, community-driven music. Awesome. Music that makes you dance, but also kind of think and feel. And, yeah, you know. yeah. And, and um, you know, I think the crowds that we attract are a sort of loyal, you know, uh, go out three, four times a month live music crowds, not the go out to one or two concerts a year music right. crowd and I think there's a distinction that um, you know not to say that the jam band and festival world is the only community that operates that way but it's certainly uh, at the at the forefront of the kind of loyal uh, regulars that make up you know clubs of our sort and you would you say you market sort of directly to that sort of ticket buyer or uh yeah, I think we have expanded more and more as we've been there. So we're you know we're doing more stuff that's in the singer songwriter adult contemporary. We've done some really good hip hop and R and B this year. So um, you know we don't try too hard to stay in one lane, but it's naturally evolved that way, which started for me at the Blockley, like you referenced. But um, we found a niche there, and we found a community that didn't really have a home. Uh, in that sort of extended jam scene, um, and the Blockley became the home for that, and Ardmore has become the extension of that. And so, um, you know, we've we've really streamlined and um, and become more of an adult version of ourselves in Ardmore than we were at the Blockley. But the same thread that ran through what we did there exists now, for sure. Gotcha. So you sort of laid the blueprint, and then this is the the next chapter, the extension. Yeah, I mean we had the opportunity kind of as a group including a number of people on my staff at Ardmore to learn the ropes and cut our teeth and make some mistakes at someone else's venue uh, which we took really seriously but still it's different when it's not yours or when it's not your money uh, at the end of the day and so the fact that we came into Ardmore with the level of experience and the depth of experience that we got at the Blockley has been huge you know has has allowed us to just start off on a better foot and kind of hit the ground running in a really positive way but bring all of the relationships in that community that we had built um, and just kind of plop it down and and go right on now you've talked me in the past a little bit that the you know since Ardmer is kind of set outside of the city limits um, you have an, a slightly older and a slightly maybe more uh, I don't know, mature, for lack of a better term, uh, fan base that you're you know, coming through the door on a regular basis, uh, primarily because of location, but also maybe because of the artist that you're booking. Yeah. Um, you find that to be uh, you know, an asset or you know, a positive, or do you, is that something uh, that you have to sort of get around when you're trying to you know, fill the room? It's almost 
unanimously an asset um, in the sense that from a business standpoint, an older clientele generally is positive for a venue of our sort because they've got a little more disposable income and we make most of our money from the bar. Um, you know, they're willing to pay a little bit more of a premium for talent so we can pay talent what they deserve to want to come to the room and still be able to cover our expenses and survive. Um, and you're not dealing with people sneaking in underage to drink. You're not throwing people out because they're getting in fights and they're getting too messed up. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very kind of step in the mature direction. And I think that the music that I've always booked and been interested in booking has you know, trended toward a little bit older soul anyway. Um, but we mixed in more, you know, EDM and stuff that was definitely catered to a younger crowd at the Blockly, whereas I think stuff that was more on the dead side, the New Orleans Jazz Fest side, um, you know, the Jazz Fusion side, that was more appealing to, you know, 25 to 55-year-olds anyway, and the 25-year-olds are now 30, and so, you know, a lot of people 30-plus are living, um, obviously not all in Ardmore, but west of Philly, there's a pretty... A significant string of affluent little neighborhoods with some cool stuff going on and a, and a pretty um, educated but artsy and interesting demographic and a lot of those people are really psyched that you know they can come and um, continue the things they grew up on the dead you know whatever it may be and uh, and do it in a place that's got more of an adult feel and not necessarily always have to go into the city for entertainment so you know, so I think we're close enough that a lot of the people that were coming to see what we did at the Blockley in Center City can get to us easily, but we're also hitting this huge swath of um, 35 to 60-year-olds west of, of the city, and they're loving it. So it's a good blend. Right on. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, before we go into the Wayback Machine for some Blockley nostalgia, uh, two things uh, you brought up. One, one is you were saying uh, regarding the Grateful Dead theme or sort of ethos or diaspora is a word I like to use and I would say post fairly well it's safe to say there's been a revolutionary sort of resurgence of Grateful Dead culture in from the generations no that lived it first to you know children like you know going to whether it's Dead & Co or the, how amazing J-Rad has been received um, you've always going back to the Blockley uh, long before the fairly well rush we're doing dead themed things uh, splintered sunlight different sort of like quasi events with dead themes um, I think we can both agree that there's a bit of an oversaturation in the market with Grateful Dead affiliated stuff and in order to retain the integrity of what you're presenting you gotta really pick your spots with it so how do you navigate that not play into the oversaturation uh, but still stay true to you know, the ethos that we discussed. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I do have to give some credit to Splintered Sunlight for sure, because they've been playing the room that Ardmore Music Hall is in very frequently for the better part of 25 years. And, uh, and they were really the first dead-related band that I worked with personally because it was low-hanging fruit. They were the Philly area dead tribute. Um, you know, we were looking to introduce some new programming to the Blockly when we were first getting involved as kind of our our crew on the live music side, and they brought out hundreds of people on our you know relatively meager marketing effort at the time, 
and those people were pretty respectful. They were, you know, they were fun loving. They were drinking a lot of beer. They weren't getting thrown out. And so that was really eye opening for the guys that owned the Blockly, but also for me and the guys that I was working with who liked the dead and grew up on the dead and listened to the dead in college. And so it was an extension of our own interests. But um, the fact that that aligned with good business was a godsend and, um, you know, and, and certainly pointed us in that direction to some degree as far as what we did with the Blockly and beyond. In terms of how to navigate the oversaturation of bands that are doing it, um, it's a tough line to toe because it works over and over again. And so we do go back to that well a lot because it's good business. Um, and because there's a lot of bands that are doing the music justice, you know, the guys that are uh, surviving members of the dead and then the various projects that they've formed have introduced the Steve Kimmocks of the world and the John Cadlesics of the world and guys that, um, ha you know, have been connected to the core of, of the dead legacy and now they have their own projects and a guy like O'Teal, who uh, is an absolutely phenomenal bass player playing with Dead and Company, uh, when he starts doing O'Teal and Friends and he's playing the Dead, you can generally assume that that's going to be pretty damn good. And so, um, you know, we try to limit the uh, just local and regional guys who are putting together a Dead tribute because we've got Splintered and they do it really, really well, I, I would argue as well as any consistent dead tribute in the country, maybe short of J-Red. Um, but when it comes to well-respected musicians from the jam world, guys who have played with the, the dead, and also guys like Mark Brownstein and Aaron Magner who come from more of the Jamtronica, you know, Jamtronica side of things, or uh, guys from New Orleans who might do a, you know, a, a funky dead set, um, you can assume the musicianship will be strong enough that it's worth giving a shot. And so any of those types of projects that come together, um, I, I know that we're bringing in good talent mixed with a community that is going to come out and support. And so it, it's a no-brainer for us. Yeah. Yeah, it's clearly working. It's working, and it keeps working. And I do think everyone sort of wonders when that will stop working. But I think if you're again, combining the, the talent level with that inherent dead draw, it'll keep working because people are showing up and they're seeing new versions. I think what has made J-Rad so successful is that they're kind of playing a, you know, a high-powered, intense version of the dead uh, not seen since the dead. And so um, you know, they're still giving you something new. I think that's what jam band fans keep coming back for, and that's what non-jam band fans have such a hard time understanding, is how the hell can you go see Fish 200 times? How can you go see yet another Dead tribute? But it is always something new, whether it's a different set, whether it's a different take on a song, or even just, you know, I mean, for, for the nerds in us, the 22nd variation in guitar solo from the last time you heard that song is... Like is enough to keep you going and to, sure. to bring you to the next show. So, um, so as, yeah, as long as the, the musicianship is bringing something new and something valuable to that Grateful Dead equation, I think it's worth doing. And I think that as long as people come see it, I'll, I'll be happy to, to host. Yeah, that, well, that's, that's a really thoughtful answer and kind of wanted to see how you approached it because it's something I wonder about when I see a lot of the different Dead stuff going on all over the place. And, and you brought up the sort of crossover with New Orleans and the, some of the funk cats doing dead stuff. I mean, we can acknowledge, you know, Let, Lettuce would have been the last band I would have expected to do something Jerry-affiliated, and they did it to, you know, wild success. So, obviously, 
can be done yeah. uh, fresh and new and, uh, like you said, a, a different take. And uh, I think that that's a value. Now, the, the unity between the dead and the funky thing, uh, you know, the Neville brothers, you know, open for the dead. There were some sit-ins through the years, and that came full circle a few weeks ago at Lockett. Yeah, I mean, the um, foundation of funk right. set with, with three members of Dead & Company, or four members, sitting in is like my dream come true type of set and I know Lettuce doing JGB is your dream come true yeah. and, and basically they both intersect I would have liked yeah. to see both of course um, but yeah that, that combination is is uh, right in our wheelhouse I mean but you've been a proponent um, not only of Grateful Dead stuff and the affiliated like you mentioned O'Teal or John Cadelsek or whoever through the years has had a project you know if it's of merit you give them to listen and most often give them the room and you've also done that with anything with like authentic New Orleans integrity. You know, I remember working for you and being impressed by seeing, you know, the rebirths and the soul revs and Kermit. Kermit. You know, and then and, and as a lifelong jazz fester, I mean that's actually something that really endeared me to want to work for you was that yeah, not that's, only were you that's what we connected on. It wasn't the dead or fish or anything else that we've since connected on. It was funk. Right. It was funk in New Orleans. And uh, and you've always brought those guys in. Um, did you always see a sort of symbiotic relationship between those two worlds, or was that something you figured out once you got in the business? For the most part, I would say I figured it out getting into the business, but I think that I was naturally attracted to both as a music fan, and from a community perspective, it was clear as I started dabbling in booking shows in different genres that whether or not I realized it at the time, there was a similar community-driven component to both of those scenes. And you see that, obviously, in New Orleans Jazz Fest and, and any other extension of the New Orleans music community. It's, it's that same sort of supportive, uh, you know, it's, it's a musician's show in a lot of ways. And so you're taking these players that uh, have become famous for something and you now support anything that they do because it's Stanton Moore and he's done you know X with Galactic, but he's doing you know three or four other projects, and you just want to support that because of the the level of talent that a guy like that um, coming out of a community as rich as New Orleans brings to the table. Right. And I think the same held true for you know doing Ivan Neville with Dumpster Funk, and people didn't necessarily know Dumpster Funk when we booked him at the Blockly, but they certainly knew Ivan Neville and they knew the Neville legacy and you can assume that pretty much anything he was going to touch was gold in terms of that Absolutely. you know that really um, southern influenced soul funk jazz fusion um, it's infectious and so I think you know there was that same kind of loyalty factor when we booked New Orleans at the Blockly that there was with the dead where we did it once or twice and it immediately became obvious that number one this is good business and number two it feels good for everybody and number three there was no real home in Philly and right. and you know myself and the people that have worked with me kind of from the start have just built that home because it was it was a glaring need and uh, and so you know I don't think much of that was done consciously I think a lot of it was done by the seat of my pants but um, but now you know having done it for eight or nine years it's it's clear that there is a lot of there's a lot of obvious link between you know, the two feelings worlds. that those two worlds give, and I can see why the dead was attracted to New Orleans and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. And would you say that the regionally, um, or in your experience in both rooms, 
um, that that music is supported uh, on par with, say, the dead music that you're booking? Would you say New Orleans has an equal market share or comparable up here? Um, I would say no, and probably not even close. And it's a little bit sad because I think, again, the culture in New Orleans is so rich that the fact that so many of the, you know, the rebirths and the Neville brothers of the world have struggled to really create a, a sustainable touring model and that a guy like Kermit never leaves New Orleans because he doesn't make enough money leaving New Orleans and so he sets up shop there and he's appreciated there and there's only a handful of cities and we're lucky to now be one of them where Kermit will go and do a few shows a year because people understand how exciting that is and how you know how much of a musical legend he is in his own right. Um, You're a big part of that. I mean you kind of broke him in this town. He'd been playing music yeah, a long he, time, but you, you... He and, he and, you know, Ivan and a lot of those guys were doing New York and that's it. Yeah. And maybe DC once in a while, but it was a lot of one-off stuff. I mean, Kermit would go up and play the Blue Note four or five nights and then he'd fly home and there was no tour because there was nowhere supporting it. So right. I'm definitely proud to have established that as an option for people in Philly and it turns out there's a pretty significant jazz fest crew floating around the greater Philly area who will come out strong for those shows and so it's definitely not as many people as I wish it was uh, but again there's a core that is very loyal and and enthusiastic and sort of spreads the gospel of jazz fest and um, yeah it's not as prominent as the dead by any means but there is that similar community driven aspect to it so um in terms of the Blackley, obviously, it's, it was a very beloved room. Um, it was, you know, it could be alternately described like a musical mecca and an absolute shit show. <laughs> and it could be both at the same time. It, it was, was often both at the same right. time. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of really classic nights there. Um, obviously in the jam band community um, and the funk community, but also hip-hop. And yeah. Um, you had a bunch of sold-out Beth Hart shows. I mean, you guys... You really nice Beth Hart reference. Yeah, well, I actually saw her on the calendar. And she's, me of, she's awfully good. Yeah, yeah she does. She does good. Didn't necessarily right? fit with some of the other stuff I was doing, but that's what I got to make money. You know, it was awesome. Good music and you know sells tickets. I was just saying, you know, you tried a lot there. I mean, you tried some really funny community-based college stuff. You yeah. tried, you know, a weekly or monthly about you know electronic this or that. Um, you also, you know. You know, folded me into the, the idea of doing lettuce there, first time headlining in Philly. And, I was and we did honor. it. No, we did, did we do it, but we sold it out and live streamed it before that was really a thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's something that's looked at really fondly. I, I've been lucky, uh, my relationship with that band changed considerably because of that experience. And that, you know, I'm grateful to you for trusting me to sort of be like, this is your show. Sell it the fuck out. It was. And, it was your. Yeah. It was your project. It you, was, you project managed that show. Yes, I did. And yeah. it was a proud day. It still is. Yeah. And uh, I just so I wanted to kind of create uh, for the listeners that didn't live it the uh, sort of context for how the Blockley was a place where so many scenes could kind of call it their own or several, um, and it was beloved and wild and crazy. But you know, it's no secret. Ultimately, it failed. And you guys had to close the doors. Right. So you are blessed, and I wouldn't say lucky because you've worked hard, but you're enjoying uh, some, you know, hard-earned success at Ardmore. Let's kind of maybe revisit 
the failures of the Blackley for a second in terms of um, where did it get away from you? What, what led you guys to having to basically shut it down? Yeah, well, um, it's a long saga, but sure. just some bullet points. Sure. Well, because the Blockley started off on the wrong foot in every way, we were able to sort of fill a vacuum and create what you just described, that beloved shit show. And the only reason that that was even, you know, thinkable was because of the mess that they endured when they opened from, you know, opening the doors expecting to be a catch-all college bar, NFL Sunday ticket, uh, DJs on weekends, bands on weeknights, great kitchen, and nobody came and nothing worked, and suddenly there was this 700 capacity venue with a lot of expenses and a lot of debt on their hands, and eventually I was given the keys to the kingdom because I came in with some energy and some enthusiasm to inject into a situation where everybody was pretty quickly dejected. And Let's time out for a second. You yeah. were really green when you got those keys. To the 100%. You're fresh out of college, or like a couple years? Yeah, two you years know? out of college. Right, and you had no experience running a room of that stature, right? No experience running anything of any stature. So how did you um, walk into that situation? Well, so I booked a buddy's band in college, high school really, into college, and that got me interested in the mechanics of live music and the industry around it was always a music fan and not a musician myself, but a lot of my very close friends growing up were and are musicians. So uh, that sort of was my natural role was the community organizer to facilitate these guys playing shows and then facilitate all of the people that I wanted to hang out with coming to those shows. And that was slightly self-serving, but mostly it was community serving and, and genuine. And I've always enjoyed that as a hobby essentially. So um, combined that with bartending and serving and being in the restaurant and bar industry and eventually an opportunity came up where the Blockley was doing live music uh, a guy that ran a, a bar that I was bartending for recommended me to those guys and said that you know, hey you should talk to these guys about a job and you might be able to get some more bartending shifts and maybe there's an internship where you can learn a little something about the live music end so I thought okay you know, that would be a cool way to kind of step forward from this role of casual manager of my buddy's band and didn't really hear anything from them for a few months and then got a call that the guy they hired to do the booking hadn't worked out and did I want to do the booking so again my experience to date at that point had been managing my buddy's band and throwing a few house parties so um, I came in to book Tuesday and Wednesday nights and learn on the job and fake it till I make it but I pretty quickly surveyed the scene and realized that nobody knew what they were doing and that nothing they were trying was working. So I started to just slowly but surely kind of step beyond the expectations that were set and make some suggestions for why don't we try this on a Friday and you know this seems like it'll work but the band says they'll only play on a Saturday and what do you think? You know, your DJ nights are bringing 23 people out and eventually like I said uh, you know Splintered Sunlight sticks out as an early example of a show that I knew to book because I had snuck in underage at Brownies 23 East, which is now Ardmore Music Hall, where I yeah. reside. For me, it was um, the Middle East. That's where I used to go underage to see Splintered as in high school. Nice. High yeah, school. so I went to St. Joe's, which is pretty close to Ardmore, and, and I snuck in while I was going to school there. But um, I knew that they were a popular dead tribute and that 
they weren't that expensive on the guarantee and brought them in and 250 people showed up kind of out of nowhere and you know spent five times as much as the college crowd drinking five dollar beers instead of 50 cent beers and uh, I feel like yeah, the rest of history. They knew that I didn't, but they knew that they didn't either, and that at least there was some glimmer of hope nice. in a few of the ideas I was bringing to the table. And they thought, you know, we better do something different and do it fast. And so, what choice do we have but to give this guy and you know a couple of his other green buddies that he had brought in a shot to you know kind of see what he can do? And so it was totally out of desperation uh, and no merit whatsoever prior to the opportunity popping up for me, but, um, but I certainly worked hard for them. I mean, I worked my ass off yeah, from day yeah. one. So they knew that and they knew that if they could give me some guidance on the, you know, the nuts and bolts that I had no, no form, formal training in that there was a chance that I might be able to take this and run with it. Um, and mind you, I had, I was an English major, so I had no business experience, no economic experience, <laughs> no management experience, no experience doing any of the things that I ultimately did there and that I do now. And so it was just a total crash of your pants. crash course yeah. in all of those things. Uh, and it worked out well for them ultimately, yeah. but, yeah. Uh, but you know, it could only go on so long because it was a mess that I inherited. True. So you just kind of, you know, I would say, you know, in my experience, and I was there for almost two years, you know, not in a capacity where I was, I had all the, you know, insight to the inner workings, but we had some meetings, you know, on a regular basis, I felt like I had my thumb on the pulse of what was going on over there, and, you know, you had a real, honest, genuine interest in the culture, and like, in much of the way I see the way Paul Levine approaches things, where he sees it, he presents the music for a fan's perspective, that's like the intention behind everything that's like sort of the Bill Graham way the trickle down Pete Shapiro's like that Paul Levine's like that I see that in you and that's actually why I wanted to work for you and why or why I wanted to continue working for you you know once I got to know you and, and why I'm here tonight and why I'm always shouting you out on you know Facebook and stuff because I feel like you really um, have a vested interest in the culture and, and it, it, of course it's about dollars and cents but you know it, it's clearly about more than that and I think that that um, was ultimately the key to the magic that was the Black League and yeah. also maybe what did you in because, you know, like you said, you inherited a mess in the financial stuff, you know, and the sort of the dark side of the operation, if you will, caused it to, you know, to happen. What, uh, we talked earlier calling Ardmore a phoenix, so from the ashes, yeah. you know, rises. Yeah. Uh, what did you, like, what are some of those lessons? What are some of those, like, all right, well, I'm taking this from the block experience because it works. We talked about the, the dead community and, and the book of the funk, but what are some other things that you, that you worked at the block that you brought with or conversely maybe some of the stuff that you didn't bring? Well, one of the things that has been important to me from the start is treating what's core about the venue or treating treating the core staff of the venue as an integral part of what I do and not looking at the venue and its management in one vacuum and then the booking and the marketing in another at the Blockley and and still at Ardmore it's all been one package and so my production guys and security guards and marketing team and my partner Tom and everyone who has been involved in both um, you know, I, I saw the value in 
having a team of people that all felt really invested in a situation and who brought a genuine sense of community to that and, uh, and, and to not have it be all about me. And that has continued to be the case. I think that, um, I've been able to steer the ship pretty well, but I have completely relied on the people around me to, uh, keep the whole thing moving. And so that's been, um, you know, certainly a common thread that I, you know, I don't want to be a star talent buyer. I want to be a, a captain steering a ship that is, right. you know, made up of a lot of really talented crew. And um, so, you know, that's been important. I also think that we were able to try and fail at so many different types of events and so many genres because we had to, because we were desperate to fill a calendar and, and I was learning on the job. And so to some degree we had to throw everything against the wall and see what stuck and to be able to identify the genres and the demographics that made sense for what we're doing and were uh, safe to work with, were you know, productive, were positive um, and, and be able to repeat that program in Ardmore while taking some of the other um, you know, EDM which uh, obviously is a huge generalization but at least in terms of the Blockly it was a lot of underage kids, it was a lot of drugs, it was a lot of um, issues in the, com in the local community and that hasn't made sense in Ardmore and the fact that we were able to leave that behind after having learned some hard lessons at the Blockly was, you know, is, is con and continues to be to our benefit. Um, whereas, you know, Ardmore is not known as the most diverse neighborhood in the world, but um, because of relationships that I built up at the Blockly and the conscious hip hop world and R&B and soul and some of the really good African-American talent floating around Philly, um, you know, I made some great friendships with uh, promoters and local influencers and local musicians and talent that I've been able to now work with in Ardmore to bring in some really amazing shows in that world from, you know, the Wyclef Johns of the world to KRS-One and Ghostface and some really... Uh, you know, heavy hitting urban talent that um, otherwise probably would have never crossed my mind in Ardmore because unfortunately it's a, you know, 95% white 30 plus demographic there. Um, you know, I think we were able to explore a, a very diverse and eclectic, uh, not, not just group of genres, but group of communities and demographics in the Philly area by experimenting at the Blockly. And we've brought those positive relationships to Ardmore and left the other ones behind. So, um, you know, we were able to learn a lot of lessons about what kinds of promoters to work with and which ones not to, what kind of private events are gonna be worth our while and which ones are gonna fall on their face. Um, you know, how to uh, deal with, um, you know, dance hall and certain types of reggae versus more sort of mainstream conscious reggae and, you know, what the difference is between Toots and the Maytals and, uh, you know, some off the beaten path West Indie reggae that, um, you know, leads to some problems if you get involved with the wrong people from the wrong part of that community. And so there were just all sorts of examples of uh, experiments gone wrong at the Blockly and um, it weeded out a lot of stuff before we got to where we are now. Right on. Yeah, that's exactly what I was curious about was that kind of like how you navigated that and what you took with. Yeah, I mean... Um, obviously hip-hop is a broad genre but there were certain shows at the Blockly like DMX for example that were a disaster and there were others like Ghostface who I mentioned that were incredible and Legendary. so 
uh, at Legendary. Yeah. yeah. And we've been able to bring some of the Legendary stuff to Ardmore, but uh, I haven't had to deal with you know, confrontation with DMX's manager and entourage out back of Ardmore the way that I did at the Blockly. And, uh, you know, I think having that consciousness about what works and what doesn't and what's bringing a positive crowd in and what's not um, has certainly helped with the fact that there's a police station two blocks away from Ardmore. You know, the fact that we're bringing in a, a, a hugely diverse selection of crowds but have no issues whatsoever with the local community even though we're on the main line in Philadelphia and there can be some conservative yeah, and sort of old-fashioned uh, influence yeah, in, you know, in our neck of the woods and we have gotten along absolutely great with Ardmore and, and all of the organizations, all of the municipal services, you know, you name it. We've got a really positive connection. Now part of that is because Brownies before Ardmore was a bit of an underage haven, and so just by not being that, we've endeared ourselves. Right. Uh, but a, a big part of it was weeding out a lot of the crap at the Blockley and understanding what's going to work right. and, and what is worth fighting off. Right on. Yeah, well, you had mentioned earlier, you had said, uh, you know, that you're not, you don't want to be a superstar talent buyer, but I would say you're, you are one whether you, you want to be or not, because <laughs> you have these relationships that you reference, and you've got a reputation that's rock solid. I appreciate um, that. And I think one of the things that has led to that uh, sort of reputation, if you will, is you've uh, given some bands a shot in the Blockley era. Uh, more than once that you know really made good you know think of some of the bands that I saw for the first time come through there Turquoise a uh, Pigeons playing Pink Pong Talk right now these bands are out there doing it right Twiddle open for Splintered Sunlight at the Blockley there you go they're doing all right for themselves indeed (laughs) they are Um, so that said I wanted to kind of explore without you know showing your hand uh, what are you looking for in a band when uh, they're coming to play your room, whether it's direct support or even giving them a shot to have the room, when they're not established, they're not quite established to the point where they, they're on a, a tour where they would just get that room. Right. When you take a chance on a band like that, you know, what are some of the, what are you looking for? What are you smelling or hearing? Well, I think one of the biggest things, and it goes back to it not being all about me as some sort of a mastermind who can identify amazing talent and pick it out of a sea of not so amazing talent. I'm listening to the people that I'm surrounded by and that I'm working with and an incredible amount of the talent that I've brought to both venues has been a result of listening to you and to other people like you who have either worked with me, worked for me, interned for me, done street team work, doesn't matter. They're more connected in a lot of ways to up and coming and interesting music than I am. Um, you know, I'm more inclined to go home and throw on a record of uh, you know somebody that I've listened to 50 times before, and I'm not always sitting on you know various tools online finding right. trolling you know for new talent. Um, I'm I've got my finger on that pulse through the people that I'm connected to, and so um, a lot of what I look for first and foremost is rumblings among the community. You know, there is a scene and it is loyal, and so even if 25 people are rumbling about a certain band that's enough to say okay there's something to that because this band is from North Carolina and so if 25 people in Philly are rumbling about them there's probably 50 people coming to see them worst case scenario and so let's give it a shot you know let's give them an opening spot I've now heard from two or three people who I consider tastemakers or who I think have good taste 
that this band is worth checking out. And so um, in some of those situations, I'll be happy to admit that I've never listened to bands before booking them because I trust my instinct on what I'm hearing, what I'm being told, what I'm hearing meaning from people, not necessarily the music music itself. Uh, Now, that's not to say that I'm not excited by and interested in new music, of course, but that's not my primary way of finding and identifying talent. It's it's paying attention to what people are saying and what people are excited about. Um, and, you know, certainly other things I look for, um, a professional approach. You know, a band doesn't have to be hitting me up from an agent that is well-respected at a well-respected agency, but you also don't want the BCC email with a bunch of typos, and it's obvious that they didn't put any thought into telling me why they think Ardmore could be a good fit for them it was clearly a blast that they sent to 30 venues. Now, that's not a disqualifier, but it's not making me jump at finding a hole that makes sense for this band the way that an email might where it says, I came to a show last year that was such and such. I was really impressed by this. I thought the staff was this. I you know, was really excited at how thoughtful the opening band you know, was for the headliner that night. I'd never seen them before, and I thought that was great. And... Um, I think that therefore we'd be a good fit and here's why. And oh, by the way, my sister lives in Narberth and we'll bring 20 of her friends. You know, that's compelling because they took the time to make a pitch and that means that they're thinking about it and that they're putting themselves in my shoes and our shoes as a venue and trying, even if they're inexperienced, to understand what we want and what we're looking for and what they need to deliver for a 600 capacity venue. Um, I think that's impressive because it shows one step up from the next 10 bands who are sending that BCC email, who are just trying to get any gig they can anywhere for any money and not thinking strategically about what makes sense for them or the people that they're soliciting. And so um, thoughtfulness is definitely a big factor in what I look for. Um, And then, you know, there's an aesthetic, of course, musically. We'll, We'll listen to make sure that a band is in a train wreck and that they don't have a really terrible lead singer and you know that they are established enough to open for a band that I might put them in front of because we're dealing with a lot of very well respected musicians who have a certain degree of you know high standard that they've sure. achieved and you don't want to put Joe Schmo in front of them and have them feel like who the hell booked this opener in front of me after that. Um, so, I, you know, that's important to me. I'm not going to have the John Medeskis of the world coming through with some schlub opener playing. Right. It needs to be guys that have some chops and that can kind of hold their own and hold their make own a crowd. few fans that night. Right. You know, we're in the business of introducing talent to people because it's hard to break into a new market. And so we want to help with that. But you better bring it. Once you're playing to that room, I need you to be on your game so that the next time you come through, you're bringing me 25 people back from that show. And that part's your job. You know, you've got to capture them. You've got to find a way to connect connect with them in a way that follows up from that show. Right. Get them to like your page. Get them to give you your email address. Whatever. Buy a CD. Um, well, no one buys CDs anymore. You can see when the effort is there on that level for a, an up-and-coming band and when it's not. Yeah, top to bottom kind of. And I will say one thing that is a disqualifier when I have booked a band uh, for the first time is if they're playing a room that is empty or, you know, they're opening for Splintered and their Splintered fans are getting there three quarters of the way through the opener set. 
um, commenting on the emptiness of the room or the lack of enthusiasm in the room is a disqualification. I can't deal with it. And I'm not an anxious person, but very little makes me more anxious than a band talking to an empty room about how it's empty and about how the five people that are sitting down haven't gotten up yet, even though they've yelled at them five times to get up and dance. It's like, you need to do your best to get them to get up and dance. And if they don't, then do your best anyway. Yeah, don't game. don't chastise. Don't make it awkward. Yeah, that's the absolute worst. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, I've heard that once or twice. It's maybe yeah. even at the block. It's brutal. Yeah. So, I want to know when uh, you made the choice to sort of pivot or transition into the management side of things, artist management. Um, how did that end up in your on your doorstep? Uh, well, like I said, my roots are actually in artist management, but very low level. Um, so I've always had the mindset of the musician side of it because that was my first taste of any of this. And it's always been something I've been conscious of. I've, I've come from a genuine place of being a music fan and supporting bands before I got into venues. So, you know, I think in that sense, it came naturally to be interested in reconnecting with that at some point um, and a couple opportunities popped up over time just I think bands working closely with me and feeling like they trusted me and and felt like I had their best interests in mind and would I help with this that or the other uh, but the the first and only real um, you know legitimate management gig that I've taken on has been with everyone orchestra and I'm still working with everyone orchestra and, and Matt Butler who is really everyone orchestra everyone else rotates um, that opportunity came up because I worked with them quite a bit at the Blockley and so we got to know each other um, Brian Asplund who I co-manage with and Matt who's the conductor and we just developed a great trust a great rapport together um, there was a collaborative spirit to what we did where you know everyone orchestra is always a new band by nature because um, the entire project is improvisation and so Matt takes this rotating cast of musicians and conducts them through their shows uh, and cues people to take solos and has whiteboards and other tools you know on stage to, to give cues and to you know to help guide the song and and also engage the audience and get the audience singing certain phrases or or you know shouting yes or whatever it may be uh, they're you know they're booking a new band every time they play and so it's this wild intersection of what I do and artist management because there's a booking component and a creative sort of super group component but um, everyone orchestra is a concept you know so it's different than a one-off where there's a bunch of guys playing the music of the dead um, this is a, a, a project that needs thoughtful growth and, a, and strategy um, and you know the fact that you layer on a booking component that is what I am used to doing day to day just made it a good and interesting, intriguing fit for me. And so um, when the Blockley closed, uh, everyone orchestra actually played the last show because right. it was a nice opportunity to um, bring in a project that had meant something to the room and bring in someone like Matt who had played some great shows in the room, but give me a chance to work with them to bring in you know, Tom Hamilton and Clay Parnell and, you know, Jen Hartswick and some people that had played a lot of other great shows in the room that meant something to the Blockley and it was this, this unique collaborative 
way of throwing a really epic last show and making right. sure it was sprinkled with people that had, you know, contributed to the identity of the venue over its That's really cool. I never knew short that history. that last gig. That I knew about that. It's a legendary gig. But I didn't know that, that the intention was there to sort of make the everyone orchestra sort of the Blockly all-stars, if you will. Yeah, and the fact that Matt and Brian were open to that was pretty right. special because... But they knew the significance of the room. They did. And they understood the significance of the gig right. for me and for the venue and for the people that had you know, frequented the venue. So they were very open to my input and my ideas. And it was smooth in terms of how that worked and how we were able to connect behind the scenes and put our heads together on what I was excited about, but also what worked for Matt and what was, you know, what made sense from an artistic integrity standpoint. And um, there was just a natural dynamic there. So those guys approached me to get involved not long after that. And it just felt like a no brainer because the work they were doing again, intersected with, you know, what I do on the venue and the talent buying side, um, but allowed me to reconnect with the, the you know true artist side of it and and getting to really think about um, everything in a fresh way you know my, I was completely focused on what was going on within this one venue and everyone orchestra you know tapped into the same types of skills but um, suddenly had me thinking about the country and not University City Philadelphia and had me thinking about um, you know, strategy on the management end that ultimately has contributed back to my ability to deliver a good experience as that a venue. Be my next question. Uh, it, it just made sense for so many reasons, and I don't know if that booking component, if that creative component of who's going to play this run and this run and this run, uh, if that wasn't there, would I be able to carve out the time that I have to add this project to my plate? I don't know, but it's been a perfect fit because of what everyone orchestra is and the fact that so many of the incredible musicians that are participating are then bringing their bands to the venue that I book right. and there's this it's cross-pollinating it's very um, rewarding in that sense because I'm getting to work with all of these people in, in a couple different capacities but do right by them and all of them and and develop this kind of multifaceted relationship that's and you're it's really exciting it's yeah you're the facilitator and so when those two things intersect Whenever an orchestra plays Ardmore, that's just like a really... Best of both worlds. It's a really special experience for me, yeah. How often do you do that gig? Uh, usually every eight months or so, okay. once or twice a year. One and a half times a year. Yeah. Right on. Well, um, we've done a lot of stuff in the past, and which has been great. Cause a lot of the bow-wow is the walk down memory lane and establishing, you know the culture, if you will. But I want to talk about the future a little bit. we got a little bit of time left. Um, as we've talked about, you're, you're having success at Ardmore. Um, you had moderate success and some failure at the Blockley. In 2018, uh, do you think that uh, the in, you know the concert industry, not AEG and Live Nation and arena shows, but what you do and what they do at Brooklyn Bowl and the 930 Club and Tipitinas, um, is, it, is the business in good shape? Is it trending in the right direction or uh, otherwise currently I think that the business and the fan community are trending in the right direction pretty much across the board I think there's newfound appreciation for live music for a lot of people that five and ten years ago were not thinking of live music as a regular source of entertainment 
I think it's become less niche and more of a mainstream exciting thing to do and that's much needed and that's good for everybody involved and um, I think Philly is one of the hottest markets in the country so I might have a little bit of a skewed perspective but certainly when you look at Philly and Denver and some of the places that are just exploding and the fact that you know places like New York which have always been exploding continue to add more and more venues and it's all working for the most part um, there's growth across the board and I think that can only be a good thing um, I do think that there's a continued ramp up by Live Nation and AEG um, in opposition to each other that is strangling the independent world a little bit um, it just makes it hard to compete because they're bidding against each other and they have the resources to just keep upping that ante and offering artists more money and um, you know, losing money on certain things even when they are quote unquote successful because they want to develop a loyalty with an artist and build them into an arena act and um, as an independent club that becomes unsustainable at a certain point um, but on the other hand that overall growth of the community and that growth of live music as a go-to option in people's minds every night just means that there's more pie to, to divide up. And um, so I, I mostly feel good about those prospects. I think that it, it, while the competition is getting more difficult every year, there's also more and more interesting talent that is being exposed to more and more people who are open-minded and who are supporting live music. So, um, you know, when Union Transfer opened up, I thought that was going to be uh, disastrous and when you know Live Nation opened Fillmore and the Foundry that was daunting and um, City Winery announced that they're opening in Philly this coming year and at this point none wow. of those things have thrown us off track and if anything we're stronger than we've ever been and the last year at Ardmore was a significant jump and, a, and significant growth from the previous year and the previous year before that and so uh, anytime that there's been concern that it's a bubble that's going to burst or the competition is too much um, I've stepped up our team has stepped up and I think the community has continued to step up and and so everyone's kind of growing into their own shoes and I think that things are pretty healthy overall I think the prospects are good yeah you know I wasn't aware maybe because I'm living in California these days but I wasn't aware that you would consider Philly that hot of a market where you mentioned it you know un in the same breath as Denver um, but obviously if that's coming from you you're not the type of dude that sells wolf tickets you really believe that and it's true well and I don't mean to say that they're equivalent so much as not equivalent but the growth right spurt is equivalent right so I think there was a stronger base for Denver five years ago than there was in Philly sure. five years ago so but the the rapid acceleration of the live music going community as well as the venue serving them I think those are two pretty notable markets where it's you know you look around and see that there's been an explosion, but it's all still sustaining for the most part. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, and I, when I think of Philly, and I talked to Scotty Swang about this, um, I wanted to kind of get it into you a little bit. Was like um, the fact that just the sort of the culture, if you will, that the Biscuits have built in Philadelphia, and sort of the generations of fans and artists, you know, as no, it's no secret that I'm not a big biscuits guy, but I'm from Philly and I work at the Blockley, and I think we both can acknowledge the sort of seismic impact that that band had on creating the live Tronica thing in a lot of ways, or being pioneers, if you will, and also the sort of uh, 
babies and offsprings and you know the sort of loosely affiliated incestuous relationships that incorporate Greenfield and Tommy Hamilton and so forth and you watched a lot of those guys grow up on your stage and in out there so do you think that um, what this resurgence or this sort of growth spurt as you put it um, is that still part of that sort of biscuits universe and diaspora or has Philly as a scene eclipsed that and is it its own thing now in your opinion I think both I think Philly as a scene has eclipsed that and there is just a really widening circle of live music um, you know open-minded artistic people floating around Philly who are looking for good entertainment and that that in and of itself is a huge factor and and interesting open-minded artistic people moving from Brooklyn and from other places in the region and relocating to Philly but bringing those same expectations for cutting-edge entertainment to Philly with them um, I also think that you know you mentioned Tommy Hamilton and Mark Brownstein and, and Mike Greenfield and all of those guys are I think examples of the same sort of element we were talking about with John Cadlesic and O'Teal or Ivan Neville and Stanton Moore. They're musicians who have established enough of an identity um, on their own to then extend into all sorts of interesting projects and interesting pursuits that the community has supported. And so in that way, I think you know those guys continue to be a huge part of entertainment in, in the market because it's not just the Disco Biscuits, it's Electron shows that are successful for artist and venue. And then it's Star Kitchen, which Mark Brownstein's debuting in November, which is a whole new project with three amazing musicians and Lady Alma, who's this amazing you know house soul singer from Philadelphia, um, and Tommy Hamilton doing Ghost Light with Holly Bowling, and the fact that while J-Rad is, is crushing... You know, he's got this other great project that debuted in Ardmore and, and had this great supportive crowd the first time out. And so, you know, Mike Greenfield is playing that same dead supergroup in October with John Kay, and um, and and all of these guys are bringing new ideas and fresh ideas to that same community, and the community supporting them in spades. So it, it's got this you know ripple effect that yeah. keeps offering. Um, interesting new takes on all of those guys as musicians and um, you know, quality entertainment for, for Philly and some of those shows are you know shows that are popping up in Philly as one-offs and they're not touring you know Electron right. is a Mark Brownstein Aaron Magner hometown show right, right. Um, you know so that stuff is definitely a di direct result of the roots that all those guys have have laid in Philly and the respect that they've gotten for anything they do now right. as players yeah, absolutely, and and I think it's also the loyalty that they have here in Philly, and also, you know, to you or what your endeavors have been, and that's actually kind of finished with the idea of loyalty. Like loyalty, you brought it up a few times. Um, loyalty is why I'm here on a Sunday night, and you're getting me in. You know, this little window of time I have, um, and that's why I'm here too. By the yeah. way, and same reason. Loyalty was, you know, when you, you know unsolicited let me drive your car to do my errand for my dad when he was dying when I was in town like that kind of stuff but loyalty is also why we make it appropriate for the podcast um, Snarky Puppy comes back in underplay and plays your room um, and loyalty is the community that you have 
at Blackley did and now at Ardmore. Talk maybe just about like, I know you have these like clubs with the Ardmore fans where you can sign up and you can sort of have like a subscription relationship with the club where you're not just buying single tickets and there's all kinds of incentives to be members and stuff. Um, so you're doing that with the fans and then, you know, you got bands coming like Snarky Puppy or getting the only O'Teal gig or the only Electron gig. Um, I don't know, not with, without patting yourself on the back or you can a little bit, but I, I mean, that says a lot. You know, it just says a lot about you, like who you are as a friend, who you were as a boss, who you are as a talent buyer, manager. Um, again, the fans' perspective, loyalty. And I think that that's, you know, your calling card, man. So if anything, just maybe talk just a little bit about what that means to you, you know, having this yeah. relationship. Well, thank you. I really appreciate all of that. And it is very important to me it's definitely something that I value above almost anything else and there's a lot of people that have been with me from the start that are still with me for a reason and it's you know, in part because I would never look to replace somebody who has you know brought a lot to our equation as a community or to me as a person with someone else who you know might be slightly better or slightly more experienced it's always about you know investing in people on the staffing end and on the talent end and anything in between, um, you know, it's that same idea of not supporting a band because we want to grow them to an arena, but supporting a Tom Hamilton because we think he's a great guitarist. And then that's Electron and it's American Babies and it's Brothers Past and it's Ghostlight and it's whatever he wants to do because he's a great guitarist and, and he's a great person. And so that dynamic has worked in the community that we've built and we've all gelled together and now I'm happy to support anything that he does. And the same goes for, you know, 50 other musicians who are bringing their projects through because they know that I'm not just chasing after the money gig of, um, you know, Hudson with John Schofield and John Medeski. I'm thrilled to support John Schofield's you know, duo that isn't as highly acclaimed that put out a somewhat obscure album that, might come in and play for a third of the people, but it's John fucking Schofield and he's yeah. a master and he's an incredible guy and he is worth investing in no matter what the project is. And so I think there's a mutual appreciation there where we as a team and I as a, as a music fan really genuinely appreciate all the, you know, the talent that's coming through and the, the projects that they're creating and bringing to the table and they in turn you know, are excited to make it their home base, whether it's their obscure side project or their underplay. And I think that same you know, loyalty just sort of has, has made its way through everything that we do. There's a comfort level with the venue because there's you know, familiar faces. Everywhere. There's, there's no turnover the way that there is at almost any clubs. venue of our sort. Um, you know, people have stuck around because they believe in what I'm doing and what we're all doing, uh, and the and the genuineness of the community that we've built, and so and how you they're, treat a big, people. they're a big part of it. And, and I think we all treat each other that way. I mean, that's Your a common staff, thread you. among the people that right. I've collected around me is they all know how to treat people. Yeah. So everyone gets a really genuinely good and positive experience out of it. And that's the other thing is, you know, there's a lot of other venues and other promoters and and. A lot of competition out there but you can't fake creating a, a relationship or a home away from home 
or a, you know a, a genuine way of treating people. That's just who I am and who we are as a team. And so you feel you either feel that or you don't, and and you can't teach it. And um, you know we I've been fortunate to know and meet a lot of great people who just are aligned in terms of those values. So loyalty has been easy when it comes to the fan and the musician side of it because we are all just really loyal people, you know, coming at this from a from a genuine place. So um, so I think yeah, loyalty is uh, is undervalued in almost every facet of the live music industry and I think that's something that sets us apart in a you know in a way that is conscious but mostly natural and uh, yeah I think that's, that's exciting to be a part of yeah I mean but and you're you're spearheading it if you will and you know, I just felt like the whole reason I'm here and wanting to do this podcast with you is because I believe in that and I've been uh, equal recipient of your loyalty and I'd like to think that it's been reciprocal you know no doubt and uh, I think that what you built on that is is massive and beautiful and successful now and uh, the sky's the limit man so hopefully we could uh, sit down and another year or two from now and sure. talk yeah. about what's happened between then and now but I think you'll know where to find me I, I, will. I don't see myself going far I right think on. we've got a good thing going and uh and I'm still really energized by all the things that we haven't done there yet. Yeah. So we're, you know, we're excited about a big fall and yeah, excited to catch up at the end of the year and yeah, report well, back on all of the all the great successes. I hope. Yeah, yeah, the successes and the misses too. I mean, that's part yeah, of sure. the deal. And uh, well, hopefully there won't be too many misses. Yeah, we've had less misses, man. And I don't mean in terms of just success, but. Um, it, but just having things be a shit show or having right. them be a headache. We don't have that many headaches as a team, as a venue, which is an awesome place to be. I mean, we're, which is not to say like that there's not tons of challenges, but the streamlining is immense compared to where, you know, when you I and I were, <laughs> holy shit. I yeah. mean, leaps and bounds. And That's so awesome. in that way, nobody's day to day is a pain in the ass. Right. And as much as we all love the block league, it was a real pain in the ass too. It could be. Because... Yeah nothing was in its right place right. and so now that it is you know I and you have a great fucking team the future is bright I mean, you really do yeah you know, i mean right? we've got a good thing so i'm not anxious to figure out what's next or what's happening in two years i feel if this is what's happening in yeah. two years with incremental improvement everywhere then great because we've got a great setup so and you're happy and you're yeah, in this great apartment with a great woman and you got another one uh, on the way baby yeah, on the way so. there you go um cool. gotta be a daddy well thank you mazel <laughs> thank and, you uh, thank you Thank you for taking the time yeah, to man. chat and having us over. Yeah, so My this pleasure. This is the powwow with B. Getz, and I'm with Chris Perella from uh, a man of many hats, but uh, mainly the managing partner and talent buyer at go. Ardmore Music Hall. So if you find yourself in Philadelphia, having to come through here at any time, have a look on the schedule. There's bound to be a hot show over there. So uh, signing off, the powwow. Have a good one. Yes, indeedy. That was my man Chris Perella from the Ardmore Music Hall and among many other projects as he detailed in that lengthy and thorough interview. So thanks to Chris for making the time on a Sunday night 
back east in the city of brotherly love. We're going to get the interview flow down and learn a thing or two as we do it. So again, appreciate your patience as we get it all together here at the Up Full Life podcast. Now the next and last thing I'm going to do for this episode is something new that I hope to implement on a regular basis here. And that is the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. Because like I have stressed, this is indeed a music-based or music-oriented pod in theory and its foundation. So I'd like to take the time to put the spotlight on something super dope each and every week. Sometimes it'll be something rather popular and maybe other times a bit more obscure. It's no secret to anybody who knows me or reads uh, the work that I may put out there that I am a huge, huge fan of the future funk ensemble Lettuce, a band that's been around for over 20 years, well over 20 years, but really uh, a full-time thing for just over a decade now since the release of their 2008 album Rage. Um Pretty much for the past decade, I've been an ardent student, supporter, fan, and friend of this brilliant group of musicians. Therefore, you know, with the pod getting off the ground, I certainly wanted to include some, some lettuce content. And they gave me a, a magnificent opportunity to do so. This past weekend, I was blessed to go on a hell of a run of shows over a four-day window of time, including two sets of lettuce, one in Berkeley, California, and the other in the Santa Cruz Mountains at the Santa Cruz Mountain Soul Festival. And uh, needless to say, they were both fantastic performances in their own right. Uh, However... On the Berkeley show, um, which was a two-setter, somewhat of a rarity for Lettuce, but something that we all hope to become the norm in the not-too-distant future. Uh, Towards the end of the first set, uh, while they were in the midst of their timeless interpretation of Tears for Fears classic, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Uh, which is a song that uh, was first introduced to this music community as a cover uh, by Soul Live with uh, Nigel Hall handling the vocals. And Nigel has since become a full-time member of Lettuce. And uh, unbeknownst to me until a couple of years ago, it was actually uh, Lettuce drummer uh, Adam Deitch who, in essence, arranged this R&B, soul, jazz version of Tears for Fears song. And, uh, you know, Eric Krasno, who was in Lettuce for many, many years and uh, is a part of Soul Live, you know, they brought the song to Soul Live and, and they performed it with Nigel, most notably a few times at Bear Creek through the years. And many of us have uh, 
a deep-rooted affection and affinity for this song and this version of this song. Much like I have a deep-rooted affinity for the R&B Jesus, D'Angelo. Now, it was D'Angelo's album Voodoo, and the lone concert I saw on the Voodoo Tour in 2000 in Atlantic City with D'Angelo and his crack band, The Soultronics, uh, with Questlove as the musical director. It was that music and that concert that really shaped my tastes and, and my preference for funk and hip-hop and soul. Uh, I could go down the D'Angelo rabbit hole, and I likely will many times on this podcast, but uh, suffice to say that that record and that tour um, is a landmark for so many of us, fans and the musicians themselves, not the least of which many members of Lettuce. So you can imagine, as I was dancing on the rail with my partner, towards the end of the first set of the Berkeley show, uh, the absolute bedlam and thrill and exhilaration that came over me when in the middle of a absolutely brilliant and beautiful rendition of Rule the World, uh, they dipped into a sort of swaggy, sensual R&B groove that they're known to do. And then uh, Nigel asked if he could have a little bit of fun and they delivered uh, the Soultronics arrangement of D'Angelo's 1996 debut album title track, Brown Sugar. Uh, now that it's available for everybody on Lettuce's uh, account on nugs.net, and that would be the September 20th show just a few days ago, You can go to nugs.net and search Lettuce and Latest Shows, and you can listen to and download many Lettuce gigs, but of course this one recently posted. And uh, I was able to do that once, you know, I got home from this whirlwind weekend, and considering I pretty much lost consciousness during the performance, it it was absolutely incredible to go back and listen to the performance. And for the inaugural Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week here on the Up for Life podcast, I am going to play the brown sugar portion of Rule the World and then kind of let it ride out for a little bit as they return to Rule the World. But I'm not going to play the whole tune, um, mostly because it's almost 10 minutes long, but really because I'd like to use this segment of my pod as a small way to reciprocate to the myriad of artists and performers and musicians that have welcomed me into their bosom and and uh, brought me to their shows and shared with me their music um, as a fan first. And then since I moved into this uh, journalism thing, um, I've been privileged to have sort of a ringside seat to a lot of dope, dope things, music concerts, conversations, life experiences. And that is not lost on me. So instead of, or in lieu of playing the complete track, I'm going to play 
a nice chunk of it and encourage everybody to go get it. You can buy the song by itself for a dollar or the whole show for ten. And I encourage the latter uh, because it's a fantastic show. Two sets, lots of music. Bang for your buck. So there you have it. I'm going to start with my boys, Lettuce, doing the D'Angelo thing in Berkeley. And I'll let it ride out with that. And I'll see you next time. Episode 3, coming at you in about two weeks. Up for Life Podcast. And I'm your host, B. Getz. Some of your